please join me today in our trip to outer space? Yeah. Albert Shivers. The Matrix doesn't happen. That's very true. Come along quietly or not. Goodbye, As I buy the time to ride From Albert The mistress of the fading light They don't have like it They're trying to put a caravan The general concept is that creativity flourishes in an in a atmosphere of freedom Hello folks and welcome to another episode of the Planet Shivers podcast I am, as I've always been, Albert Shivers And I'm excited for this episode today my guest on Planet Shivers this week is motorsports documentarian, author, journalist, and NASCAR historian, Brock Beard. He is also one of my favorite NASCAR YouTubers. I think that his analysis of the sport and his historical perspective to it is not only amazing, but also very much needed. One thing about NASCAR and motorsports, but really NASCAR, is the importance of the history behind it. And Brock and I talk about that too. It was a big thrill to be able to talk with him. I've been watching his channel for a long time now. And he's on the podcast. I never would have thought it, but here we are. Um, I just also want to let you know that Both Brock and I had a little bit of audio trouble as we set up the Skype for this episode. Just want to make you aware of that. Things are not perfectly ideal, but I tuned them up as good as I possibly can. But it fits the theme. This is my Gorilla B-Movie podcast. To put it in NASCAR terms, we're kind of like the Furniture Row racing of podcasts, if that makes sense to all my NASCAR people out there. But with a little bit of help, we might be able to win a championship out of nowhere. So with all that said, just want to fill you guys in on a little bit of what's cooking with me. New art show coming up this weekend at the Create and Be Art Gallery. They're doing their annual Black Culture Show. My very popular Richard Pryor portrait will be in this show as well as three other pieces, two of which that have never been shown anywhere before. And my art show at the Gamut Art Gallery, my pen and ink show, is also still going on Um, that will be going on until may 14th you could see what else is cooking on my instagram at albert shivers as well as www.albertshivers.com for any of race fans who are tuned into this show for this episode i do a lot of race related art too combining surrealism pen and ink throw a little salvador dolly on nascar with that I'm going to shut up and we're going to get to my conversation with Brock Beard. I want to thank Brock a whole bunch for coming on the show and us making it work with our schedules. We covered a lot of cool stuff and I really, really hope you enjoy it. It was great to talk to somebody who loves this sport as much as I do, if not more. And to be able to talk with somebody who really speaks fluent NASCAR. It's really NASCAR mother tongue. I knew that whatever I threw at Brock, he'd be able to pick up and run with, and that's pretty cool. You know, we're all from the same, all of us, the same NASCAR island, and we all speak the same language, but not many people speak it, and it's always fun to find a native speaker. 
And finally, the secret word for this episode is dodge, as in the car or the truck. If you find Brock and I saying the word dodge, timestamp it in the comments below. The first correct timestamp gets a shout out on the next episode of Planet Shivers. I will talk to you on the other side of this conversation. Enjoy my talk with Brock after these messages. June 3rd, one night only at Raceway Park. The Snap-On Tools Night of Thrills. Presented by PC Richard and Son. Ashley Force, daughter of 13-time funny car NHRA champ John Force. Racing her A fuel dragster. Plus 300 mile an hour nitro funny cars. The blown out doubles, pro stock motorcycles, wild wheel standards, jet cars, and more. A record-setting car jump. Plus six car-crushing monster trucks. Everyone gets in. Tickets at the gate. Gates at 5, show at 7 p.m. The Snap-On Tools Night of Thrills. Presented by PC Richard and Son. Brock Beard, thanks so much for coming on the show, Brock. Hey, thank you for having me. Um, one, the first thing I think I'd like to know, and it's something I like to know from every NASCAR fan that I run across, is um, how did you get into the sport? Well, good question. You know, uh, for me, uh, you know, I know people have different stories about like different racetracks they grew up with or different drivers they followed. Um, you know, uh, I think for me, first and foremost, it was Days of Thunder. Um, okay. It came out uh, in, in 1990. I started following the sport in 91. Uh, but the movie had a tremendous impression on me. I was about eight or nine years old at that time. And uh, ultimately, uh, I live here in Northern California. So uh, it, led to, it made so much of an impression on me uh, that we ultimately went to uh, our first race next year at Sears Point. Uh, first time I uh, traveled out there recently, just celebrating the anniversary of uh, going out there, uh, and uh, just just fell in love with the sport. I think it was to see it in a movie is one thing, and kind of really the exaggerations of the way the the races play out, yeah. and then to see it in person. Uh, the first race I saw uh, was Ernie Irvin going from worst to first after a black flag on the first lap and coming back to win. Of course, this was Richard Petty's fan appreciation tour, mm-hmm. and Petty featured kind of prominently here and there in, in Days of Thunder. So it's just kind of the realization of, of, of that. And and, uh, and, uh, and I think that really was, I mean, it was it was a tremendous experience. Uh, you know, family had a great time on that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just made me that much more curious about the sport and watching the telecasts from there. And uh, it's, um, you know, there's, there's uh, it, it really kind of picked up momentum from that point. Gosh, yeah. So being there in 1992 during Petty's last season, how how he- like how how heavy was that? I guess in terms of how much presence was there to know that this was Petty's last season? Well, it was huge, uh, absolutely huge. I think the first souvenir I picked up at the track was one of the fan appreciation tour uh, okay. diecast there of uh, the, they issued them for all the different tracks, and then Sears Point had their own version of it there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that was probably one of the first things that really attracted me to actually, you know, seeing it the track. Um, you know, the the first moment I imagine I remember seeing an actual race broadcast uh, was Rick Mass flipping upside down at Talladega, okay. uh, which is in July of '91, and then Penny made his announcement in October of '91, and I think it was just it just really speaks to 
the extent of the advertising that the Fan Appreciation Tour had in 92 that somebody like myself, who is very, very new to the sport and also, you know, again, nine or ten years old, um, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. I remember they had, like, remote control cars of Penny's car. Um, Micro Machines did a promotion where they, they, they you know, uh, uh, made versions of his car. The 43 STP car was just seen to be everywhere, and it's still one of my favorite paint schemes, and, and yeah. it's also a reason I've always been very partial to the old Pontiac teams as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I fully appreciated it um, in terms of his career, um, certainly, right. you know, being aware of the 200 wins and, and him as the brand. I always remember him from more, um, he did the commercials for, um, you know, Armor All Protected and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and he was still such a visible figure, even in that phase of his career, that, um, yeah, it may be, it may, that was probably the first storyline of really following from one week to the next. Gotcha. So, I one of the things that you put out is your Jerry Nadeau special. Uh, about you being in the fan club, um, all the different things that they would do for the fans through that fan club. And I'm sure that Jerry was not the only driver to have such a fan club. So the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is how, at least in my time of being a fan, NASCAR seems so connected to the fan base, even more so than other sports, probably. And like to hear you talk a little bit on that on how it does feel even as a fan it does feel like a one big family i think that's a fair that's fair to say you know i think i think the other thing is one big family but it's also i think it's the same thing like like any family there's there's also a very deep lore there's also like it's it's all one story mm-hmm. um and i think that was probably um the thing that really grabbed me i mean i um even at a time we didn't have social media, and of course it's so hard to imagine that now. Like you mentioned, I mean, it's people are so plugged into drivers these days. Yeah. Um, even just watching it from you know, when you're just experiencing it, it's just one race to the next, um, and trying to kind of string. I think it was so much more important back then to like build those storylines and understand how one race built on the next, and how this driver is trending this way, this driver is trending that way, and the fan clubs were a big part of that too. Um, I actually wrote a letter. I didn't mention this in the native video. Um, I wrote a letter to NASCAR asking about what fan clubs were out there because I don't think I was even aware of what website had the information or anything. And that I actually got a letter. I have it somewhere on NASCAR letterhead that literally had the addresses to all the fan clubs from 1999. Um, and so that was, that was, and again, this was, it's, it's a perfect transitional period because right around then you started to have people have their own websites and stuff like that too. Uh, but th- a lot of it was still pen and paper and, you know, typed out. Um, and that was how I signed up for Jerry Nadeau's fan club. And uh, I was also, Ricky Rudd was another driver I pulled for. I kind of mentioned him a little bit in the Nadeau video. Um, and those are the two fan clubs I signed up for. And I always loved, you know, the little stuff they would send in the mail, newsletters, uh, stickers, things like that. And that's something I tried to actually kind of maintain myself in my Patreon. You forgive mm-hmm. the plug. Uh, sure. Patreon.com slash LaskaronBrock. Um, I still send out uh, periodic uh, newsletters on kind of updates on what I'm doing. And uh, I have like stickers I print each year for returning members and stuff. And um, I, a lot of that is very much inspired by those clubs back then. Gotcha. Yeah. Like as I got in, I came into the sport about 2003. Um, friend of the family worked for Interstate Batteries, 
and I was flooded with Bobby Labonte gear. Ah, okay. So that was my first first driver, and it was it was a a tough road jumping in on Bobby Labonte being a fan in two thousand three. I got to see a couple of wins, and then it sort of petered off. But one thing that stood out to me was how we we really were taught a lot about the drivers. They were in commercials. They were on cereal boxes. They, you really got the chance to almost feel like you knew them in a way. You know, there was always a, uh, something about their personal life, whether in the pre-race or during the week. So you, at least to my point of view, you were able to, again, feel close to them, that you knew these little things about them. And generally, you know, Junior, you had Dale Sr. and Ralph, or you knew the families as well, and, and the fact that things were very much passed down through drivers and even crews and crew chiefs. You know, you always heard about the families, and that to me made it feel like that big family atmosphere. No, I agree. I think that's, I think that's very much, and, and, and I think, you know, I mean, you're, you're really making me kind of think about, like, you know, how how that's kind of evolved because it used to be, you know, you, you talk to like fans, you know, even older than myself where they talk about the culture of the garage area and people mm-hmm. just able to just kind of walk in and out of the garage area and see, mm-hmm. you know, Jeannie McDuffie working on his car or, you know, Dave Marcus. And then they'd be right mixed in with big names like, you know, Dale Earnhardt or, uh, you know, Jeff Gordon would be kind mm-hmm. of be walking around through there too. Um, you know, and then nowadays, yeah, it's the social media angle. Now we're probably yeah. learning even more about these drivers lives uh, than anybody could have had in a multitude of conversations in that mm-hmm. time period. And, uh, you know, I guess it's, it's not really good or bad. It's, it's just different, I think, for sure. Mm-hmm. I do think there's kind of a longing for that time period as being perceived as a bit more simple. But I think part of that simplicity was just the um, that, that, you know, there was still a little bit of a barrier because... Um, you know, is it was, it was uh, you know, it was some kind of a regional sport at that time, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, so I think I think you had to be more you had to be more aggressive in trying to find out you know more information about drivers. And yes, they would be in a lot of places, like you said, with advertising and everything yeah. too. And that was certainly the case. But it was kind of up to you to kind of piece all that together and kind of develop your own perception of like these drivers. If that makes sense. Yeah, I do understand what you mean. I do. So another interesting aspect about the sport are the independent teams. And you have spent a lot of time working and, and highlighting the independent teams um, with your Rise of the Field Filler series. And looking back through the history, I, mean, I, I definitely didn't notice it when I first got into the sport. Um, when you're uneducated about it, you just kind of say, okay, those are the guys in the back. And... When they do run up front, it's usually through some kind of strategy or could possibly be looked at as, quote-unquote, as a, as a fluke. But the more I dove into the history and learned about the sport, those independent teams and those, quote-unquote, backmarkers are very important to, to, the, to the sport as a whole, all through from the beginning to now even. So if you could talk a little bit about um, rise of the field fillers and your interest in showcasing those teams and those drivers. Oh, certainly. You know, I've I've always I don't know where exactly this this started with me, but it, I mean I've always been kind of adverse to to hype. I always kind of 
when, whenever there's a story that's getting plenty of coverage, you know, I mean, I guess it's kind of it's kind of strange. I mean, especially after leading off with the fan appreciation tour and how big of a story that was. Um, usually, when it is a big story about like a top driver or something like that, you know, I was I never grew up as really, you know, a, a Dale Earnhardt fan or a Jeff Gordon fan or, or or somebody that was really big into following just the winners and kind of forget everybody else. I was always curious about just just aspects of the sport that we didn't see. And again, kind of that striving to find more information, kind of like I was describing earlier. Um, that was probably the start of it. Um, something I always mention on, on uh, when, when I'm asked a question like this is, um, I the, the late great Bob Jenkins, um, mm. I think, was easily one of the most. Um, I think hero is a little bit of a, a, a difficult term there, but definitely influential personalities in my own life. And I think one thing that I love that he did was he really, and, and, and the rest of the ESPN crew, really, but, I mean, him is kind of the leader of that, you know, really gave you a full experience of the race. If you couldn't beat the track, you had something you could say about, really, most of the field, if not everybody. And even if it was just a passing moment, like, you know, one thing he would do is when they, the leaderboard would come up, and if you watch those old races, the leaderboard wasn't constantly on the side of the screen. Right. It would pop up maybe every 10, 15 laps. Uh, he would always start off by saying, you know, here's the leaderboard, a Fram field summary, you know, look where your favorite driver's running. And I always stuck, stuck with that literally. I always thought, okay, well, that's not just Dale Earnhardt or Jeff Bodine or Rusty Wallace. Like that's probably even like, I always love the thought of somebody being a fan of the drivers that are further back in the lineup. Somebody's already a lap down or fell out of the race mm-hmm. and then wanting to tune in and see how that driver's doing. Um, and, you know, not all, you know, often we didn't see the paint schemes of a lot of these cars or very rarely, uh, or, you know, you didn't see what happened to them. They, they wouldn't have, a, you know, they, they'd have good garage reporters, but we wouldn't see the moment they went to the garage area. I was always curious about that aspect of it. And I think that's perfectly captured in these field fillers. And we, we've seen, and, and as I described in episode one, the sports always gone through these cycles where it's had really lean times and, and really, profitable times i think you know and, and and it's always it's always gone back and forth and when it's been lean you've had these kind of smaller teams that had to kind of really step up and you know even if they only had part-time or maybe one-off money really try to stretch that out to be almost a full-time effort until things got good again right. um and you know 2004 was a case of this 2009 was another one um, and you know 1992 even with the, the, the fan appreciation tour there were a lot of field fillers that season um, and, uh, but again, some of that information, it, it may be lost to history, but a lot of those people are still out there and still available, you know, to talk to. And I've been very pleased, um, in all, but really one case so far that people have been really eager to kind of, you know, well, two cases really, um, that people have been eager to kind of share their memories, uh, from when they were either a team owner that operated one of these teams or a driver that drove for one of these teams. Um, you know, I've, I've had some drivers where they said, well, look, that just wasn't really a fun time in my career, but I've had other ones where like Andy Belmont, I was on the phone with him for like three hours uh, and he just had all these great stories and it really led to, I think that's probably one of my favorite episodes of that series because he, and it's entirely because of him. Uh, I just had to just boil it down into something that was 40 minutes long or whatever. Um, because you know, he's the star of it. I mean, that's, that's, and that's the thing is like every field has those guys. And even if they're not necessarily a field filler, not necessarily a small team, obviously today in the Cup Series, the charter system, 
right. you know, what qualifies as a small team is is not that far off of, you know, the main beat with the new car. But, I mean, there's still some consistency at the bottom of the field. Your live fast effort, your Rick Ware effort, um, you know, and so forth. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of been my interest there. I think it, it's just, it's, it's, it's always, it's, it's, I was thinking about this before the show here tonight, and, and I was thinking, you know, really, it's not always, uh, what I put forward in my videos isn't always just something I just know offhand. A lot of times it's the result of me, like, trying to, like, really understand something I have an interest in, and then I'm learning something, and I like to share it with people. Mm. So that's kind of the thing. There is some stuff I do know. I don't like to trust my memory 100% because I don't like getting, you know, getting something completely wrong right. and then posting it offline. Uh, but, you know, uh, but that's that's what I really enjoy. I feel like, hey, here's this thing I found. Look, at, isn't this weird? And mm -hmm. then that's kind of the way I approach the videos. Gotcha. To jump back to Bob Jenkins for a second, like I watched a lot of those races on ESPN Classic once okay. I got into the sport. And one thing that always stood out to me was that when Bob Jenkins and, and even Ned Jarrett and Benny would jump in on it, but their through the fields were yes. more detailed than later years where they would almost, if they didn't all the time, go completely through from first to 43rd or at the time it was less cars, 40. Um, and that, that always stood out to me too where they would dedicate a period of time to each driver in the field and did make it feel like, you know, it's, it's to me it was easy to only think of the top 10 or the top 15 drivers and kind of hone in on them. But like you say, there are a bunch of drivers out there all with their own stories and they're all working, to me, they're all working just as hard to get around the track, some harder than others. So I, I did always, I noticed that and appreciated it when I first seen it on the older broadcasts. Well, I agree. I think that's, I think it was a, a huge aspect of that is like again it's a, it's a full field experience any any driver in that field you know could, could be a very big story um you know i think even one of the full full uh, through the fields that i recall specifically i mean this is more in hindsight i didn't see it live but in 89 at the atlanta race that was the championship race um they went they caught up with uh, Derek cope at one point and mentioned that he had a few strong runs. Like, wow, he's looking really good. We're going to have to keep an eye on this guy. Mm -hmm. And then, lo and behold, a few months later, he goes to Chevy, and he wins the Daytona 500. And it's like, and everybody's like, where did he come from? It's like, these people don't come from nowhere. Even a guy like Jamie McMurray or Trevor Bain that won very early in their careers, mm -hmm. uh, they worked like hell to get up to that point. And they earned their spot. I mean, you know, okay, yeah, you got pay drivers, you got people that are working up there. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know... In one way or the other, they they work their way up to that spot, and that's and that's a story worth telling. Um, and that's one thing I like with the last place are uh, the articles too, is I think that allows you know, pretty much you know maybe only a few drivers can win even in modern NASCAR, but anybody can finish in last place. And with that, is also an opportunity to kind of you know slow things down a little bit. It's like yeah, the last place finishes a framework, but also kind of talk about you know who this driver is, how they've been performing how the team's been performing, what they're looking forward to, um, and kind of catch up in that moment in time. So that's, I think it's, I know you didn't ask me about last car, but that's, that's, that's kind of the, the connection there too. Yeah, and it's, you, you mentioned uh, Trevor Bain's Daytona 500. 
I remember watching that race live, and I didn't fully even appreciate that finish until I had started to learn more about the history and like Wood Brothers and all that kind of thing. And, and they did the one of when they were doing the documentaries the day. I don't remember if it was Speed Channel, but they had done the documentary on that finish. And you don't like to me. I was very into the sport, but I wasn't very deep into it. And you don't always see, to what you were saying, you don't always see the journey to that. You know, my introduction to Trevor Band was the, the, I think it was 2011, or I'm sorry, yeah, 2011 was that Daytona? Mm -hmm. So my introduction to Trevor Band was Speed Weeks leading up to that go. race. And you're not right on that. I mean, there are a lot of people that, that were, you know, for sure. You know, that didn't watch him as much of the Bush series or, um, you know, uh, kind of working his way you know, up the ladder that way. But, um, but yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of somebody that would be a contender, I mean, um, you, know, I, uh, you know, that whole week, I mean, Jeff Gordon said he wanted right. to draft with him. Yep. It's like, who, who is this kid? But, um, but, yeah, I mean, the history of the Wood Brothers – um, is is tremendous in the sport there, and and I remember doing a montage. I was I was doing, I kind of did starting grids and kind of hype videos around that time period, and I was do, putting one together for that year's 500, and I felt like I was putting too much Wood Brothers clips in it, okay. um, and so I remember having that thought. That's like, oh, there's kind of a little, too, but I kind of left it more or less the same, uh, never thinking that Bain was even going to be a factor in this. I don't think I even knew for sure he was going to be driving the car for that race. Mm -hmm. uh, and then suddenly, yeah, just like uh, Tiny London, 63, he goes out there and he's the big hero. So. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned Derrico. Um, one, of, one of the other big aspects of what you do is being an author, and you've written a book about J.D. McDuffie, probably one of the to my opinion, the face of the independent driver of NASCAR um, since I started to learn about him. And you're working on a Derek Cope book. Um, if you wouldn't mind, um, talk a little bit about the J.D. McDuffie book and also a little bit about the upcoming Cope book. Certainly. Uh, J.D. McDuffie is a figure that, uh, not intentionally, but constantly has come up in just about any kind of research I've done on the sport. Uh, and, and really unofficially my research for the jd mcduffie book really began about 1999 2000 about the same time like i was talking about the fan club letter um around that same time i although i got into the sport in july of 91 with rick Masslip, i didn't see jd's last race at watkins Glen, so i had no memory of that i had no awareness of who he was and i certainly wasn't aware that that he was killed in that race at watkins Glen. all of that came up more in you know again kind of the start of the internet era, um, around 99, 2000, I found a die cast at a, um, uh, at a antique dealer in the Bay area. And it was a really interesting, like distinct looking car. It's that burgundy and black car, kind of like you see on the cover of the book there. Okay. And I, I never heard of this guy and I was like, well, this is kind of interesting. And then I did a Google search or whatever the equivalent was back then. And it brought up this stuff from Watkins Glen. It's like, wait a minute, this, this driver was killed in Watkins Glen. And like, you know, um, it, and then curiosity really began began at that point, trying to understand what exactly happened in uh, the accident, and then trying to also, of course, understand who he was himself. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, you know, I, I kind of pieced some stuff together. I found some books that had some pictures in them. There was a, a guy, I think with Steve Park on Watkins Glen in 2000, he uh, posted some of the pictures he had himself of Watkins Glen in 91 and, and talking about the accident. And it really was just, again, kind of like I mentioned with the videos. It's just my own curiosity. It's like, okay, well, let me see if I can understand this. Um, and, you know, uh, by 2016, I kind of had the thought in the back of my mind about doing something with, with JD. Uh, but what really kicked things into overdrive really with that was in 2011, um, on just, just a, a, a leap of faith, mm -hmm. uh, I reached out to uh, Marty Burke, um, who um, came up in an article, one of the articles I found about JD said something about uh, him having JD's car from his last race at Watkins Glen. Wasn't sure what the details were. Heard there was something with the family. Um, so I, I kind of looked up his name, and I I found his email address through a website, and I just sent an email. I says, "Hey, I'm you know kind of interested about JD. Um, you know, can you kind of tell me about?" It? He says, "He says, yeah, I worked on his crew in the mid '80s." Like first message he got back to me, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like this is. A guy that, I mean, I, this is the first person I've reached out to that actually had first-hand knowledge, not just knowledge of J.D., but somebody that had worked with him directly. Mm -hmm. um, and that became kind of an article I did in 2011 um, around the anniversary of the accident. I guess that would have been the 20th anniversary of the accident back then. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we developed a good friendship. I mean, he's still, you know, we, we still talked, uh, you know, here and there about, uh, about J.D. And um, at that point, you know, he knew a couple other crew members, and those crew members knew a couple other people, and then eventually cycled back around to the family, uh, who were very hard to reach initially. But then um, Linda uh, McDuffie, JD's uh, daughter, uh, was extremely helpful with that. Got me in touch with uh, uh, her uh, mother, uh, Ima Jean, who just just passed just recently. I'm so glad I was able to get a hold of her before before that. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody, every single person I talked to. Um, even Jimmy Means, who famously peeked his head in the in the window of, of JD's car after that accident, um, mm -hmm. right away was just an open book, and he would he, he, the first thing he told me is what he saw, um, okay. and and everybody was just that it's like it's like everybody had these stories and was just waiting for somebody to come around to ask them. I think maybe in some cases maybe they had shared these stories. I certainly sense with Linda that there had been something like that, but. With everybody else, I think it was like maybe either they were overlooked or they just kind of kept it to themselves. And they shared so much information with me. And at that point, it, I was thinking about doing a video, but then I was like, no, this this has got to be a book. Especially with some of the pictures that uh, uh, Mike Demers, uh, who also sadly is no longer with us, um, Charlie Birch, who's very much with us uh, over in uh, New York State, um, and others kind of sharing their materials from it. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like this is I think this is gonna be a really, really good book when it gets done. And I've been very pleased with the response. Uh it's it's been it's released now in its second edition last year. I had a couple of updates uh provided from some other people that I've uh, spoken to since the book came out. So I feel very good about, you know, I mean there's probably gonna be a third edition further on because I, I never wanna be done with JD McDuffie. I don't think it's possible to be because I mm -hmm. think uh and I and I haven't mentioned much about him himself jd himself i mean i think that was kind of the mystery to piece together is because you know you don't have the person himself to talk to and everybody that says something about jd 
uh, was just saying how shy and how quiet he was, so he kept to himself. So you really had to kind of piece all this together, and uh, I, I hope it would be something that he would have approved of. I know that, um, you know, there's... Uh, it, I, I've been pleased with a lot of people that have been involved in it that they've reacted positively to it. Um, and that was really kind of the, the, the goal. I was very pleased. Uh, Waldorf Publishing... Uh, you know, took a chance on me on that. Uh, that was the first publisher I'd worked with. Uh, we're not working together at this moment with there, but I mean, I still, uh, I still owe them, you know, a, a lot of gratitude for uh, giving me the chance to get my first book out there because I mean, mm -hmm. that's what you really got to do to kind of get out there with this business. Um, the Darren Cook book is actually going to be self-published um, in the process of that, um, and that one, I, I, what I really wanted to do with the next book. Uh, Field Fillers was actually going to be my next book, um, okay. but what I what 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 that's why all the material, especially the first few episodes, kind of came together relatively quickly, not a hundred percent real fast, but um, a lot of that was going to be in a book. But I felt like I was just transcribing video clips I was seeing, and I was like, well, this would probably be better just as a video, and then I'm not wasting all this time trans transcribing what you could just see. You could see Derek Cope's qualifying lap for Arnold Motorsports or. Uh, Andy Hillenberg's interview on um, uh, uh, race day or anything. Mm -hmm. um, those are, you know, those are things that I think, you know, are much more effective in a video format. But that was going to be my next one when that kind of, when that kind of took off more during COVID. Um, by that point, I already started doing the research for the Derek Cope book, and Derek was probably one of the first drivers I pulled for. Um, I actually, at Sears Point in '92, uh -huh. uh, he was the first autograph I got. <laughs> okay. So uh, he actually signed my Mickey Mouse hat. He just got back from Disneyland earlier that year, and um, uh, I still have the hat um, uh, somewhere. So um, I just loved. I mean, again, I loved the paint schemes he ran. I thought he was he was a very interesting personality. Uh, certainly, the win the Daytona 500 was mm -hmm. uh, a big part of that too. Uh, but again, a driver, I felt like even back then that really wasn't getting the full credit for his accomplishments, and I think that's something I want to kind of focus on in his book. So I'm sorry, this is kind of a long answer. That's but, okay. Uh, but you know, with, um, with Derek, I mean, uh, I think it was important that the next book not be on another tragedy. I didn't want it to be another story about a driver that lost his life. I wanted mm -hmm. it to be something to show. I want the kind of connected connection to be again, like, you know, look what I found. It's more like, these are stories that even longtime fans of the sport think they understand, myself included. I mean, I thought I fully understood exactly what happened with Derek Cope. Not at all. Uh, not until speaking with him directly and his wife, Alicia, and uh, other of his sponsor representatives completely changed my perception of, of him and his career. And I hope that that's going to come across in the book itself. Uh, because I do think that you know, you talk about Trevor Bain, you talk about right. the concept of maybe a fluke winning the 500, even though Derek ultimately won another cup race that year at Dover. Right. Um, you know, trying to kind of understand more why things happened in his career, what steps he took, um, and is continuing to take. He's still active. He and his wife are active in uh, Trans Am right now. Okay. Um, so it's, uh, and, and that's the other thing, the other challenge with Will, the ending had to keep getting rewritten when everything was happening with they were operating when they started Starcom, when they closed Starcom, when they got into Trans Am and all this other stuff. So the, the ending's been rewritten a few times, but okay. uh, but I, I, I think it's I, I'm at the point now where I'm like, okay, I think this will be a good stopping point. It's gonna tie everything together. Um, and uh, we'll cover all that. So but I think the the, the, the 
connecting trade is, yeah, uh, JD's accident and Derek Cope's winning in the Daytona 500 are big moments in the early 90s of the sport, which was, again, a formative time for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think deserve a real deep dive into understanding everything that led up to it and stuff that, that has happened afterwards. And that is very much going to be the same approach to the Derek Cope book there. Uh, but again, under under tone-wise, very different context where we're talking about not just a driver that won, but a driver that won the hardest race that there that is to win in the NASCAR mm-hmm. even today, the Daytona 500. So, um, and I hope that that's going to come across there in the book is um, in future books. And I, and I'm kicking around ideas about other things further down the line. I'm kind of spending more time on, I plan on spending more time on the videos after this book's released. Um, but, um, that's kind of what I'm looking at. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, I, I, Obviously, came in after his Daytona 500 win. Um, to me, he was always somebody who ran more in the back of the pack as I got deeper into the sport, realized that these people had big careers and, and climbed tall mountains to get to where they are. So I look forward to, to reading, reading the book once it's out. I'm excited for it. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so we'll, we'll jump to 500 days now. Um, that I think that depending on how deep one wants to get into NASCAR or any form of motorsports, um, the the details that one can dive into are almost limitless, at least to my view. And I never even realized just how much went on from the end of 2000 to the end of that Daytona 500 um, with Dodge coming in and even all the, you know, I never really pieced together how standout even the events leading up to the 500 were. Um, the IROC race, the truck race with Bodine's accident just a couple of days before. So there were so many storylines in that documentary that you made um, and the biggest of which being Dale Sr. So what what made you decide to dedicate the amount of time that it took to do this several-part documentary? What was your inspiration behind it? Certainly. Uh, you know, it's it, it was a couple different reasons. Um, in the short term, um, as Field Fillers was continuing, um, the episodes were taking longer and longer to produce, uh, but not... Um, you know, uh, it, it wasn't really from my side of it because I mean I was still able to get a good amount of research on these different drivers. Uh, Brian Hallman of the BRH Racing Archives, I got to give a shout out to him because he has provided tremendous pictures and continues to um, for these different drivers uh, that are featured in the series. So there, there was no issue with that, and no issue combining video and stuff to kind of put in there. It was just hard to get that last step of getting the interview with the driver to kind of tie it all together. Um, I released the Hermes Sadler video without his interview. I, I really hated to do that because I felt, especially now, I mean, what, he's like running for public office now. So I'm like, right. it's like, but I, I just sense that he's just, he's just a tremendously busy individual with all the businesses he's involved in and charitable initiatives that he's involved with. Um, I think it just would have been difficult to pin him down for even 20 minutes there on mm-hmm. that. Um, and uh, so, I'm, you know, I, I just went forward with that episode. I uh, was about to do the same thing with Stanton Barrett, which is the next uh, the next episode I had planned on that. Um, Stanton had concerns with the script when I first sent it, 
Um, and you know, I was, I was like, okay, cool. We'll workshop it. We'll do another interview. Uh, he, I think he's even busier than, than Hermie, uh, with of course now his work in Hollywood and, right. and he's a cook. He's got, I mean, my gosh, he's just a absolute furnace of activity. So what I decided to do is basically even back when 500 days was starting to kind of come together, I decided to just kind of just put that on the back burner, you know, hopefully maybe, you know, if it was, if it was tomorrow we do an interview or if it's three years from now, it'll be ready to be finished off at that point. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to hold up anything on this. So my plan was with 500 days to just kind of produce something while I was waiting out kind of Stanton's schedule on his thing. And my thinking was initially I was just going to do silly season in the 2000 season um, and kind of lead up to 2001. But there was so much momentum when I started writing that it carried it right up into speed weeks, 2001. And then it's like that went right into the 500 and then really, you can't talk about the 500 and not talk about, of course, what happened with, you know, with Dale Earnhardt. And that carries you right into Rockingham. Mm -hmm. So even when I announced it as a three-part series in November, uh, I'd already been working on the fourth part since September. So, uh, and I thought about changing the trailer, but I'm like, well, I probably there's probably going to be people who aren't going to want to see part four. Because, um, I mean, people that were long-time Earnhardt fans. So I didn't want to feel like it was it was something that they'd be obliged to have to see, right. uh, which is why I even went to the point of even making a disclaimer beforehand. Um, but it, I mean, they've done very well. I've been very pleased with the response on all of them there. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I gotta say, probably I, the 2000 season in particular has come up in so many of my videos, and and I think really it's 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 it's, it's just what I think that was a really key moment in in my own following of the sport i really i really didn't follow I, as much as i got into the sport in the early 90s i usually just kind of watched races here and there in okay. terms of like watching races on a consecutive week basis and really kind of following those storylines that was more like 99 into 2000 okay. so at the peak of that was certainly everything leading into 2001 i i distinctly remember and i was a senior in high school at this point um you know, everything felt like it was building to something. Like, Dale Earnhardt won that Talladega race. They had that aero package. It was incredible. I mean, just, I mean, even back then, compared to the races back then and, and with the drivers we had back then, that was an exceptional race. And everybody wouldn't stop talking about it. It's like, okay, now they're going to run this same package at Daytona for an even bigger prize and be the 500 winner. Then you have, on top of this, you got Fox coming in for the first time, and they have this whole new view of covering the sport. You yeah. got Dodge coming in there. We hadn't had a new manufacturer. My whole time following the sport, we I just seen manufacturers leave, like you right. and Oldsmobile. So anybody coming in it was just like it's like that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, but then all of a sudden, there it is. And they got the pennies, and they got these teams. And how good are they going to do? Mm -hmm. um, there was it was such an exciting week, and and yeah, it felt like something big. I mean, this 500 is going to be just huge, and it was, it was, and you sense that, and 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 it's so hard to describe that now because, of course, the 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 overwhelming tragedy of losing Dale Earnhardt the, on the last lap in the last quarter of the 2001 Daytona 500 mm -hmm. has completely wiped all that away. I think from almost everybody's memory, um, I think nobody looks at that race without thinking about what happened seen. and I don't mean to minimize that at all. I mean, right. which is why I wanted to continue it on and keep talking about what happened afterwards. Um, I think, but I think it's so important to to really break down that Speed Weeks 2001 was 
every bit of his, it's even more exciting than you can even possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. Even more than like when Toyota came in, like 2007. Like, I mean, that was, that was pretty big, but the Dodge thing was, was 10 times more uh, easily in terms of like how much hype and what companies were behind putting, you know, putting out that he had companies like, uh, you know, General Mills and the, the diecast cars and yeah. all that and thing. You got uh, new companies like UPS that were sponsoring, not Dodge teams, but sponsoring Dale Jarrett and, 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 and new companies coming in and everybody wants their piece of the pie. Um, and then, yeah, the Super Speedway package and Fox and Dodge. It was, it was huge. And, you know, that, that, that whole week, that excitement was, it was palpable. It was, it was, it was just, it's, it's so hard to describe. You really have to just kind of, I mean, what I wanted to kind of capture in making these, in making this, especially part two, which I've seen is, is consistently been the most popular of the four episodes so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everybody really responded to that. They really responded to like, yeah, this was really, I mean, well, the way you described it too, it was, it was really this exciting with this much stuff happening. And at the center of it, in all those events leading up to the 500, was always Dale Earnhardt. He yeah. ran four of those races that week, but each time he ran, and, I, and this is why I broke things down, you know, to start part four of the series. I really want to kind of really draw that out and mention: look, you know, this was not a man at the end of his career. Mm-hmm. This was a man who was revitalized. This was a man who was driving his best that he ever had, um, never knowing. What was going to happen? Obviously, mm-hmm. you know that he could he could have won the shootout. He was leading what coming to the white flag. He could have won his duel. He was leading on the backstretch on the last lap. Mm-hmm. He could have won the IROC race. Any Cheever had to literally drive him into the grass, right. and even then he didn't wreck the car. Right, and he could, and he could have won the five hundred even after running in the back of Ken Schrader. Um, I think as Dr. Jerry Punch mentioned so solemnly that that night after after we got the news. You know, he could have made a move, and he could have made a move that entire week. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that really speaks to how competitive things were, but also how competitive he was. So I'm glad that that came to the surface in the video there to kind of show that, look, this wasn't a guy that was over the hill. This wasn't a guy that, you know, this happened. I mean, he was running third when the accident happened. Yeah. Uh, the, the man was at his absolute best. And I think now that so much time has gone by, um, that's, it's, it's, it's amazing to think really, even after we've seen like blink of an eye that Michael Walter did, I still think it's a fantastic documentary mm-hmm. and the day you mentioned that series, yeah. um, the one that F- FS1 did on that was great too, which is why that one part of it where between the accident and the end of the Fox broadcast, I really don't focus on in my series because I can't improve on what they did. I mean, that's, I'd just be repeating their stuff and I wasn't really interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, Everything that led up to that moment and everything that happened immediately after that is the stuff that either people have blocked out of their memories or has just been overshadowed. And that's what I really wanted to capture. And and really, the series is going to be continuing, too, because um, that momentum that I described that really started this, it really continues into, you know, Vegas, Atlanta. I and mean, you're wearing the Harvick hat right here. I'm sure yeah. you know, you're pretty excited to see the 29 back on the track at Wilkesboro. Yeah, um, yeah. It occurred to me, you know, for, for somebody like me, I mean, I remember when he ran the white car at Sears Point uh-huh. uh, in the 29 car in 2001 and cost Robbie Gordon that win uh, that year. You know, I mean, I go far enough back, but I mean, there's there's fans that have been in the sport now. I mean, it's been 10 years since he's run the 29 in, in 2013. Yeah. 
um, you know, people haven't even seen that number on the track. So I know that's going to mean a ton to people out there. And I'm hoping to get some more uh, episodes of this out um, before that race. That's at least a goal I'm, I'm working on here. We'll see how that works out. But um, certainly Harvick comes up a lot in, in the Rockingham episode. So I definitely was, was glad. I had no idea. Well, again, this just fell into place. But, I mean, when I released that episode, it was the night before he announced his retirement. I mean, it was the rumor was already out when yeah. that was premiering, but it wasn't confirmed until the next day. Um, no idea on that. I mean, things just, right. you know, fall into place. But yeah. uh, I, I think that's that's definitely not a reason people responded so positively to that one, mm. um, despite the fact that that phase of it, of course, is such a difficult aspect. But, um, and I think you can tell from just me describing this, I mean, it, it was just, it was, it was all these emotions in just, just a few days. I mean, it's, it's called 500 days, but that's just all the lead up from, you know, late 1999 through 2000. It's really compressed down to just like those nine or 10 days. Uh, right. the last part of that there, uh, leading up to February 18th, 2001, um, that, uh, it was, it was just everything. I mean, I remember, I mean, the, I remember my brother and I watching that race. I have a younger brother four years younger than me. Uh-huh. So he remembers that clearly he's, uh, he's a big Sterling Marlin fan. Um, and, uh, so, you know, um, you know, I've asked him if, if that race ever gave him kind of mixed feelings about that. Cause you know, he was kind of a Marlon and a Earnhardt fan and right. you know, he kind of downplayed it, but I'm, I'm sure it was something that, you know, that bothered him, you know, at the time. But, um, but yeah, I remember we were watching the end of that Fox broadcast. And there's that clip. I don't know if I played it in 500 days where Mike Joyce says like, you know, um, Dale Jr. D- dreams of winning the Daytona 500. Michael Waltrip just dreams of winning. This okay. race, any race, right. like just really hammering. Like the whole week, Fox is just hammering that stat, and Michael's like, "Okay, come on, everybody's still <laughs> talking about this." Right. And of course, you know that at least for a moment he got to enjoy that, but not nearly long enough. But I mean, that was that was huge. I mean, my God, my, Michael Waltrip's you know winless streak was something you know we had followed for so long, even just in the few years that I've watched it. Um, I remember that Martinsville race that he finished third in the year before. It's like, man, he's he's getting there. It just he just can't yeah. quite get there. And um, you know, I and when he got the, the ride with DEI, it's like, well, I mean, heck, I mean, it, it could be this could be the chance. But I mean, I don't think I realistically we were watching him that much of the race until he was up there. It's like, man, he's really got a he's really got a piece. And then yeah, yeah. But I mean, that was just just so much. It, it, it's such a dense subject, and and it's and it's not a Dale Earnhardt video necessarily in that mm. series, but because I try to really, I love to give as much context as possible. Because what I want, what I wanted to do, and I and I hope it's succeeded in this, is to bring you know fans like yourself or you know others who either weren't fans back then or weren't even alive back then. I mean, we've had a whole generation back then now mm. that are in their young twenties that you know don't even know you know, weren't even alive at at the time when Earnhardt uh, was around. So I want to really bring him to that time period and be able to live, you know, I mean, it's not the perfect, it's not a one-to-one, but as close as possible to what it felt like. And I think, I think those of us who have had, you know, more experience following the sport, I think that's what we owe to younger generations is to really make that feel alive so that they can share in that experience. I mean, I, I, I could just as easily, you know, just just sit, just lock myself in a room, and watch old races, not share it with anybody. But I don't think that's going to be 
I don't think that's I don't think that's the proper use of time. I think the best way to do that is to really share that with people and really bring them into it. And and I and again, I'm not always successful in doing that, but I hope that you know some in some cases I have. Hmm. On the on the topic of one more question about 500 days that I have um, in in regards to Dale Earnhardt. So, like I had mentioned before, I came into the sport in 2003, um, just a couple of years after his passing. And coming into the sport at that time, obviously I knew immediately who Dale Earnhardt was and Dale Jr. But at that time, it, looking back on it, it they, Earnhardt was perceived as almost not human. You know, yeah. he was... He was on on such a pedestal, and understandably, his accomplishments and his he had passed so recently. So, one thing that I'd like to ask you, as somebody who was around while he was driving, um, just to think of how to word it is um, not so much like was the hype true? I'm pretty sure that it was, but um, what what was that feel? You know, like was he always the headline was he always a focal point during races that he was in watching them live? That's a good question. You know, it's there's there's a split, at least in my experience, and again, I think somebody maybe that, that, that had more experience watching the sport in the eighties or even late seventies and Earnhardt's earlier career could comment on this even better. Um, but I remember like early '90s, first couple of years of the sport, it seemed like there were a lot of people that were Earnhardt fans. I mean, they were you were either like an Earnhardt fan, you were a Rusty Wallace fan, you were a Kyle Petty fan. One of the guys with the black cars. It always seemed like it was that. Okay. Um, so that was kind of the thing back then. <laughs> but then the late '90s, and I and I described this in one video I did um, when I kind of turned, you know, kind of kind of refocused my channel a little bit was um, why late '90s NASCAR was was great besides Dale Earnhardt. And that's not, again, much like 500 days, not meant to be a slight against Earnhardt, but right. to understand, to answer the very question you asked, which is, you know, was was Earnhardt this kind of all-encompassing figure? Mm -hmm. The short answer really was no, because in the late 90s, Jeff Gordon was the guy. Mm -hmm. he, it was Gordon versus the field. Anything mm -hmm. from 95 to right up to 2001, even including the 500. Gordon is fantastic in that race, too. Mm -hmm. uh, he saved that car from wrecking two or three times that speed weeks before getting caught up in somebody else's mess in the big wreck. Uh, would have easily been a threat for that win had that not happened. Um, and I think that goes that goes to show it. I was thinking about this earlier today, too. I think I, think I still believe, even having seen the last decade of Earnhardt's career, uh, I think Jeff Gordon is the, the, the best race car driver I've ever seen in, in, in NASCAR. Easily. Easily. Okay. Um, I think he was he was exceptional to have matched against guys like Earnhardt and Rusty Wallace and mm -hmm. Dale Jarrett and Mark Martin in the late 90s. And then you have, towards the end of his career, and he's still winning against guys like Kevin Harvick and Joey Logano yeah. and Brad Keselowski and, you know, and then guys that are still good now. Kyle Busch, mm -hmm. um, you know, going, I mean, may not have won a championship after 2001, but was constantly in the mix. You yeah. know, if Jimmy Johnson wasn't as successful, you know, or, or if one thing played out this way or that way, you know, who knows how many championships he would have had. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think he's still the most incredible. And I and I think that that, that was one <laughs> excuse me. One thing I think that factors into that time period is is I still remember it as Jeff Gordon versus the field. If Gordon got in a wreck, it's like, oh boy, now somebody else can win. Okay. But it's like that's what it took. Right. And that's why you have all these people that cheered when he wrecked. Because it wasn't so much like they wanted him hurt or they wanted him out. No, no, no. It's like they knew that that was about what they needed to have happen for any of their guys to win. Because there were right. a lot of people that weren't Gordon fans. You still had a lot of people that were Earnhardt fans. And and to kind of go back to your original question, that's where Earnhardt was. He was he he had this tremendous presence, undeniably, to to the thought of the sport without him. Like even in any role, like if he was like a you know if he was even if, even if him not driving was unthinkable, unthinkable. Like you, you couldn't, and probably you know to make a comparison. With, like, Daryl Waltrip in the mid-90s, I think people were already thinking, well, okay, this guy's probably going to retire. He's, he's, I've always felt bad for Daryl Waltrip because it always feels like he was kind of bridging two generations, that he was a little bit too old for, like, the Dale Earnhardt era and a little bit too young for the Richard Petty era. That right. kind of so I, I always, the only time I remember Daryl Waltrip was him running badly and needing provisionals every week. Mm-hmm. And, but I still remember Earnhardt being good in that time period. But Earnhardt, Although he had this presence and he was inseparable from the sport and you couldn't imagine the sport without him, he was still one of the guys. I think that I think he was maybe he was a guy that had maybe a disproportionate number of fans. Would I say it would be like ten to one, like it was with Dale Jr. after Earnhardt's passing right. or when he went to Kendrick Motorsports? I don't think so. I think maybe it was more like three or four to one, maybe something like that. Because you had a lot of guys that had very dedicated... I mean, Jeff Gordon's first and foremost, if we're talking late 90s. Uh, Rusty Wallace fans were huge. Kyle Petty fans were huge. Terry Labonte fans were huge. Uh, Bobby, you mentioned Bobby Labonte earlier yeah. with the Interstate. He mm-hmm. was huge. Uh, Jeff Burton. Uh, gosh, the list just goes on and on. You start thinking of Mark Martin. You think of yeah. two or three, and you start thinking of the rest of them. All these people had a massive fan presence. And, and, any, and if Dale Earnhardt wasn't the story say, in 1997, 98, yeah. he wasn't the story. They didn't pay him any more attention. They didn't say, oh, Dale Earnhardt's not running well. What's up with that? It's just like it would be Ricky Rudd's day or it would be Terry Labonte's day, mm-hmm. and that person would be the feature of it. <laughs> so, you know, undeniably, I, I, I would say he was he was still more popular than Jeff Gordon, even in the late 90s, early 2000s. I think, you know, a lot is said about him wrecking Terry Labonte in Bristol and people being angry at him. Heck, I think that kept him in people's minds. I think that actually did more for his fan support. At least it felt like it to me. Because um, it's like, you know, he had Bratlin his cage and stuff. People loved that. A lot yeah. of people booed at that, but not as many as he may think. Right. A, lot of people, a lot of people loved that. Um, but, yeah, he was, but he was, again, he was one of the guys. And I, I feel terrible for Dale Jr., because he didn't, he didn't get to have that experience really for very long in his Cup career. Yeah. That he had this tremendous burden that was put on him, and he had to be successful. And there was no way on earth that he was going to be near, you know, as, as, as successful. His father was just, you know, the, the, the seventy-six wins, the seven championships. Um, I mean, in many ways, Junior was a fantastic driver, especially on the super speedways. Yeah. Uh, and and won some very hard-fought wins. But you know, much like with Kyle Petty and Richard Petty, much like with 
um, you know, other drivers that we'd seen, you know, different generations. It just wasn't the same situation. And it always, and I, I always remarked, especially towards the end of Dale Jr.'s career, that the sport was then marketed as junior friends. It was always like, here's Dale Jr. Oh, and everyone else. Even <laughs> if it was like a Jeff Gordon or a uh, Joey Logano or a Brad Keselowski. Hmm. Um, and, and there was actually a pretty good discussion earlier today about this, about um, 2018 and when Jr. retired from competition, you had Danica Patrick kind of scaling back her career. Right. And who was to be the new media darling? There really right. wasn't. Um, and, you know, I think that's that was the big difference. So I think, you know, again, going back not to stray too far from your question there, I think that was the big difference is that, yeah, Earnhardt, you know, he may have been like, you know, the Frank Sinatra of the group, you know, the leader of the rap pack. Right. But there was still, you still had a Sammy Davis Jr., you still had a Dean Martin. You had this other group that was just as noticeable in their own right even though they were also known as being, you know, kind of, you know, Earnhardt was still kind of like the big figure in the garage. They had right. kind of the mystique about him. Um, and that was one of the things I think that's, I think that, I think the sport, and again, you know, uh, that turns into a bit of commentary. I think the sport can get back to that. I think it just requires, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky with social media because we feel like we know so much about these drivers already. But in terms of like understanding their role or that that personality that comes out, um, that is that's that's so important because then you can get really strong fan bases for it. I, I, I'm sure that there are people that would be huge fans of drivers. I mean, Denny Hamlin, I think, has single handedly um, changed. You know, uh, people have already kind of changed their perception somewhat. Maybe not 100 percent. I mean, it's not like he's the most beloved driver. He's going to be the most popular driver, but I think he's he's um, he's kind of changed his image into something more accessible to people through his podcast. I, uh, I think I think it's mandatory watching and listening yeah. to his show because uh, I think I think people maybe either didn't understand him or thought that they knew what he was like or whatever. Uh, it, you know, I think he's very. I love his self-deprecation. I love his knowledge of the sport. His passion his work ethic, um, and, you know, he's he's not going to BS around on, on topics. And if we saw that from other drivers, I don't know if the answer is just every driver needs to have a podcast. Right. I don't know if that would work, but um, I think that's done wonders. I think that's the closest we've seen to a driver kind of getting closer to that 1990s model. It's like, oh, I know Mark Martin is the guy that's, you know, the really jacked up guy that's, you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. working out all the time and he's dominating, you know, Michigan. Or I know that Rusty Wallace is the really cool guy with the the, the sunglasses that flies airplanes. Um, um, we need to get we need to get closer to that because I think that we still we don't need the drivers the lineup to change completely. We just need to know them better, right. you know. And I and I like that there are drivers that like Hamlin are kind of doing this where they're kind of allowing themselves to be seen a lot more, which is good. And I hate it for the ones that came and went in that time period that we never really did get to understand. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, who knows? I was thinking of Cole Went earlier today. I was I was at one of his last starts uh, at Sears Point, and, uh, you know, he was telling me about um, his sponsorship with uh, Arctic Coolers still in the sport, and uh, he was running an old Michael Walter car and stuff like that, and um, just kind of understanding understanding these drivers and what, you know, what they do. Um, and you know, you, ne- you, you never know who's going to be a big figure, but I think that's what the sport kind of needs to get back to is, and that, and that's what Dale Earnhardt was a part of. Right. For sure. Yeah. <clears throat> speaking to your point, um, 
not that every driver needs a podcast, but it was Glass Case of Emotion that got me to become a bit of a Blaney fan. There you go. So that's a perfect example. And and up until Actions Detrimental, I was a bit indifferent on Hamlin. I didn't dislike him, but didn't never really pulled for him. And I'm I love the insight. You know, I love to hear what what's going through his mind in the car. That gives me an idea of what might be going through other drivers' minds in the car. You know, it indirectly gives me insight on the drivers that I am pulling for each week. So, yeah, I became more of a Hamlin fan listening to all that and just kind of hearing it from that perspective and the opinions of somebody who is in the car and in the sport and isn't afraid to share them. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. Yeah. You know, but I think that's, I think that's something... I, I I think that the fans, it always makes it sound like the fans are always really upset about everything and that they don't yeah. know what they want. I think they I think they, they know what they want. I think it's just very hard to articulate it sometimes. And I think a lot of people, a lot of disagreements come about for like, you know, how to reach that goal or what to call that goal or something. Um, but I, I, I always look at the sport. I think it's, it's got tremendous potential. I think, I think we're, I know that the economy is, is to say the least, really rough right now. But mm-hmm. I think the I think the the direction of the sport, if it's allowed to kind of, you know, go the direction it's kind you know that it's it's naturally going rather than forcing it to go this direction or forcing it to go that direction, the way it's naturally gone, and bringing in new you know new investors, loving to see Trackhouse and twenty three eleven and yeah. uh, even the Live Fast team, even you know BJ McLeod getting his effort up there. Um, you know, I think that, that those are those are positive indicators. I just think the business model isn't a hundred percent perfect, and NASCAR is dealing with that you know, ramifications of that right now too. But um, you know, it's, it's it's a reason that I'm very passionate about um, the way the sports broadcast because I think yeah. that's the, the PR image of the sport. It's like you know, it, it especially it's it's absurd to to think that it doesn't have a big role on you know, how the sports proceed because it's basically a three hour commercial for the sport. So yeah. if you're not doing it very well, or you're not showing all these drivers, you're not letting their personalities out. Um, something's wrong uh, because it's otherwise it's, it just becomes traffic. Uh, and it's way more than that. It still is. So, you know, but that's, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. And to just touch on that, one thing that um, really put that in perspective for me is when, You've shown you've done your your humorous broadcast parodies. Mm. I've enjoyed those. Um, oh, thank you. But just comparing even just the the cinematography from earlier earlier seasons to now, and I didn't even realize how much it had changed until seeing them both side by side, and just how much that just the cinematography can tell such a story or not tell a story based on what's going on in the race. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really, you really are putting together a movie live, yeah. which I get, and I, and I know that these networks would be like, well, you can't expect us to get it right. We're doing it live. It's like, well, it's not like all these older broadcasts at ESPN or TNN or CPS weren't doing it live. They made it work. So I, I think it comes down to keeping it simple. Just keep it simple. Like it doesn't have to be rocket science. We don't need a gopher cam. We don't need 
16 different, we don't need a gyro cam or a helmet cam or any of this other stuff. We don't need 30 reporters in the infield. We don't need create you know, a, a studio in Charlotte with a, with a changing graphic behind you and stuff. <laughs> like, you know, we could do the first starting grids I did on, on YouTube in mm-hmm. 2008. I did it on a 2001 compact Presario that overheated that <laughs> had a big fan underneath it. So you can hear the fan in the background of the audio. Like, and I, I'm just some schmuck here sitting, you know, <laughs> it, you know, sitting in, in my, in my parents, you know, uh, uh, house there putting these together. So right. if I could do that, these networks can clearly, you know, cut a lot of money and just put it in the right places. It just, it just trim things down a little bit and just make it simple. Like, you know, just do a couple camera changes, a couple white stream wipes. I was watching the Phoenix race in 2000 recently because I didn't, I, 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 it occurred to me that I hadn't seen the whole race live and I was on the edge of my seat. I knew I, even though I knew who won the race, even though I kind of knew what was coming in there, the way it was shot, it looked, it made the track look like it was too small for the cars. It made the cars look like they were going way too fast for the track, like or like they were just out of control. But they mm-hmm. weren't. It wasn't rack, rack, rack. It wasn't like they were constantly wrecking. It wasn't right. even like they're constantly bouncing off the wall. It was just racing shown to be really exciting. And this isn't at Daytona or Talladega. This is at Phoenix, right. uh, and it and it looked like I was watching. Like the way they describe Bristol, jet fighters flying around in, in a, in, a uh, uh, in an auditorium. Uh-huh. It's, and that's the way it looked because it was shot so well. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's like this is really good. I couldn't turn it off. Like, you know, how how many broadcasts recently make you feel that way? See, that's the yeah. tricky part. Yeah. We need to get to a point, especially in the YouTube era and the streaming era, we need to make sure that these these broadcasts have rewatch value because yeah. the highlight clips. That may get you the nuts and bolts of what happened, but that's not going to get a lot of views. Um, and but yeah, I, I and again, if I if I ever had the opportunity to really sit down with these guys and and say like, look, you know, do this, I would bring that two thousand Phoenix race with me because I watched that. I'm like, man, that is that is good. I don't know what we need to do to get there. Well, that is what we need. Right. Like it was it was good. Were they, they just looked. At, I mean, it was crazy. Were there two races in Phoenix at that time, or just the one? Just the one. Okay. See, that's the exciting too. Yeah, that's back in the time where yeah, you had to wait all the way till what the next to last or the third to last. I think it was. It used to be Phoenix, Homestead, Atlanta was the last three. So it was you know it was it wasn't the um, you know the championship race, of course, like it is right. now. But uh, but yeah, yeah, they still had just mm-hmm. the one November date. Gotcha. And to, to answer your point a little bit, um, the commentators were always very mm-hmm. important to me, and yes. watching. The Richmond race a few weeks ago, something felt something felt good about it, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then it dawned on me that Larry Mack is in the booth. Yep. And just what he brings to the broadcast with his insight, with his passion, um, I always felt that he was, you know, he really he brought me up. He would get me ex- more excited with certain things. I recently watched the end of the two thousand eight. Daytona 500, and when they're coming off turn four, and Larry's saying he's um, Ryan Newman, it was he's got to make it wide, he's got to make it wide, you know it 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 brings you into it, and that was also a big a big part to me. And maybe you could speak on that a little bit in terms of a commentary. Certainly, no, I and I sense I sense that too. I think one thing that was really important with that Richmond race 
and and I and I and again, it, it, it really encourages me because it's telling me that Fox is actually kind of learning, you know, from some past mistakes. I think they realized that last year in the spring race, they didn't cover it very well in the spring race. I think they were completely caught off guard by the tire strategy that Denny Hamlin worked out that allowed him to catch up and pass Byron and, and, and get the lead. Um, even the call that Mike Joy had at the end was flat, and I know he wasn't happy with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nothing seemed to be working right. So I think that they really knew they needed to have a crew chief presence or somebody that's strategy-minded in the booth because they clearly didn't have it last year. And I think this race would have played out very differently. It would have played out just like that if they didn't have Larry Mack in the booth. I think that he was, yeah. He, was, he, was, he, he changed that perception. I mean, we're talking, this is the crew chief that allowed Brett Bodine to win his first race at Wilkes-Pro in 1990 by short-pitting. An Astroman yeah. History has an excellent video on that. <laughs> got to break down how exactly that played out. Because uh, <laughs> Richmond race is the same way. But um, the uh, but I think that was it. I think he kind of kept, not only does he have that excitement level, like you mentioned with the 2008 finish there, but yeah, awareness of the strategy and and, and predicting what's going to be happening coming up. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not a big Steve Letarte fan on the NBC broadcast. I'm sure that that was anticipated what his role would be. I think he's he doesn't he doesn't there's that X factor that he doesn't quite have that Larry McReynolds has, and I don't know exactly what that is. Um, but maybe maybe this positive example from that Richmond race would be something that leans that way. Because yeah. yeah, it was it was a much more it was a much, much more enjoyable broadcast in that Richmond race this year. I think it was probably one of the best broadcasts they've had this year, mm. honestly. What what I pick up from Larry Mack and what I picked up in the past from Darrell Waltrip and even Mike Joy today and even Benny Parsons. Now, I'm familiar with Benny when he was on NBC with Alan Beswick yep. and Wally. Is that their love for the sport really comes through to yes. my to my way of thinking. And, and you that, can't fake that. That's the big thing. Yeah, yeah. And that excites me and makes me want to be more invested in what they're saying because they're so excited about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's huge. I mean, it really is. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I get very, very critical of, of the broadcasters. And I, and I know that they're not 100% responsible for the way these races are shown, because again, the production crew deserves just as much scrutiny for how they film these shots and how they, you know, how they transition from one shot to the next. It's, mm-hmm. it's both parts got to be working together. Um, but that doesn't mean that the broadcasters don't have any role because yeah, when you hear, when you hear bad commentary, um, you know it. I mean, how many times I, I mean, I didn't personally have any problems with this, but I remember in 2005, they had like this one guy, that was covering the Indy 500, and I guess he was like a—he he, he wasn't covering motorsports that much. And the only person he talked about the entire broadcast was Danica Patrick. And yes, okay. Danica Patrick was a huge story in that race because that was her breakout run, and right. she ultimately almost won the race before Dan, uh, Dan Weldon beat her. Um, but that was like all he was talking about. <laughs> Everybody's just like, "Don't do what that guy did." Right. Um, but I just don't get why these other broadcasters today don't seem to get the same treatment. Um, you know, I, I'm, you know, again, I think you've got, you have, you have, you've had some problems on, on Fox's side where there's some talent that doesn't quite mesh. I mean, you mentioned the thing with Larry McReynolds and bringing him in there and yeah, that's, those are things that help, 
Uh, I've never been a big fan of like Adam Alexander on the Xfinity side. I think his heart's in the right place. I think he's got the knowledge. I just think he's he's a little too laid back. Just a little too laid back. Like you can afford to be like kind of you know like Bob Chickens had a very you know I I, I think was was self deprecating to an extent. But he was very professional too. I think yeah. you know the, he suffered no fools in the booth. Mm-hmm. Ken Squire, same thing. Yeah, and that's what I. That's kind of what I miss. I think you got to have a firm. If you're going to be the play-by-play guy, you got to have a firm hand on the wheel. Yeah. Um, and then the same thing with Rick Allen on the on the NBC side. I think the problem Rick Allen has is there's just too many people in the booth. Four people is way too much, and especially when three of them sound the same. And then you got Rick just kind of getting talked over. Right. Um, I think he needs to either assert himself more or just trim down what he has to compete with. Um, the problem I have with Rick is I, I'm not sure if he, if his, if his passion for the sport is genuine, uh, which is disappointing because I thought in the Trek series, he had a very genuine passion for yeah. it. I thought he really knew who these guys were and he had some great calls back then. I, mm-hmm. I was stoked when he got the cup, but it just hasn't transferred over. Um, now in both cases with Adam and, and, uh, and Rick, maybe it's a situation where it's how they're being directed. Maybe it's not a decision they themselves are making. Right. Mike Joy was very clear in saying that he is always performing for an audience of one, and that's always like the, the guy at Fox that you know they got to you know for, you know basically says yay or nay to whatever decisions are going right. to be made over there. Um, maybe they're getting bad direction, so that could be it too. Because um, I mean, I was watching that Adam Alexander when Brendan Poole almost won that Talladega race, and I was like, wow, this is the same guy. That was a great call. Yeah. Just do that every week. Right. <laughs> He actually looked like he was like the world's biggest Brennan Bull fan, and I was like, "Wow, good, good for him." <laughs> but uh, you know, um, I don't know. But it, I think it's, I, I think the problem is, is you know, and I know that social media trends tends to be negative, and I try not to be too negative in my stuff. Mm-hmm. I get a bad rap on that sometimes there, but I think the alternative is to just go along with it and say, "Oh yeah, that's fine." That that's damaging too. So yeah. I, I, I think any of the things that I bring up in particular are all fixable. Um, and I, and I do think there's a lot of raw potential there, but you, you gotta do something with it because it's just gonna, it's, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. We got all these people despairing about ratings and, uh, you, you know, the fan base is too old and all their stuff. None of that would be a problem if you just stayed present. There needs to be more presence and purpose, uh, purposefulness in, in, in there. And as long as that's there, that transcends age. That transcends how long you've been interested in the sport. You know that that, that attracts new fans. Um, that's what got me into it. Uh, I don't see it why why today is so different. But I don't know. I feel like I've gotten on too long, too much of a rant on that. Yeah. That's that's something that runs pretty deep for me. That's okay. I, I can understand that. I mean, it was it was probably about two years before I went to my first race live, and I had been consuming only the broadcasts up until that first two years, and that was a big part of hooking me into the sport. You know, watching whether it was Daryl's interactions with with the drivers or hearing Benny Parsons' passion and, and how they all work together. I mean, I think as, it's a funny example, but as played out as Boogity 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 may have been. Yeah. Um... I did have a Daryl Waltrip boogity 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 shirt as I was coming there in. There you go. Yep. You know, so it was it was part of it, you know, and some of those things that might have seemed silly or like an eye roll to us then 
you know, it's we seem to be missing it now. There's there's just something that we're just not hitting on these days. Yeah. Well, the the unfortunate reality. I mean, it's it's it, I mean, it's 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 a brutal sport on all fronts. I mean, as yeah. as, as entertaining as as racing is, as spectacular as it is. It can be very unforgiving, and I think not just for drivers, but for for yeah, media or broadcast in general. It's a long season. Um, it is. It's a long season, and there's a lot of eyes watching you. And if things, if there's any perceived, look how quickly, you know, Jimmy Johnson's career went from oh my gosh, he's one of the best ever, he's Mister Seven Time, to what have you done for me lately? Yeah, it was almost instant. Um, once he went to the Ally Bank sponsorship, like it's just like it just it was like a light switch. Yeah. And it's like, it was like, what, what the heck? It's like, this guy is still the seven time champion. He's still arguably, you know, he dominated an entire decade of the sport. Yeah. Um, he's still that guy, you know, okay. He's struggling a bit, but you know, come on, give the guy some latitude. Hasn't he earned it? But look, if, if Jimmy Johnson can't get that kind of latitude, um, yeah. What hope do, you know, others, I mean, we've seen so much turnover with drivers that you maybe thought would never retire. Uh, you know, or, 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 you know, things like that. And I think that applies to broadcast too. Um, as, as, you know, I was there for Daryl Waltrip's last broadcast at Sears Point in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, it was, there was, there was a tinge of sadness to it. I mean, I think they were trying to, you know, really give him a proper send off. But I mean, you know, you, when, when a broadcaster gets older and you know, everybody's watching, maybe you, you know, you flub a couple lines or yeah. you, you get a stat wrong or you just, or, or the sport just changes, and it's just, and it's now so different that it's even hard to comment on. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, maybe not. You know, it's not like you just you just get completely you know shuffled off and you don't pay attention to you. But maybe find a different role in that. You know, whether it, you know, I, it would be nice to find a place for people. This this came up when I talked with Jerry Nadu, um, in in uh, after doing the video there, is that 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 was a big thing that happened with him. He gets injured in the sport. And he's just looking for something to do. He still cares about the sport. He knows he can't drive, but he knows that he has something that he still wants to offer, whether it's driver coaching or, you know, consulting in some way. It just needs to be a place to put people. And and I think that, you know, applies with, yeah, again, (coughs) either retired drivers or, (coughs) excuse me, um, you know, broadcasters or, uh, anything of that uh, that matter too. So I think that's uh, I think that's very, um, you know, it's it's easier said than done. But I think that that would that would kind of lessen the sting a little bit of of those transitions. I think. Understood. Understood. So in in closing, Brock, I'd like, and you could one one race, two races, whatever you'd like to do. But um, I'd like to ask you about. Um, some standout races, whether you've seen them in person or whether it was a broadcast that you watched. I think that every fan has them. I certainly do. Um, what might be one or two of some races that either you you think about from time to time or one that you enjoy going back to watch again? What what might a few of those be? Five Daytona 500. Um, that one, I, I mentioned this in my, my broadcast criticisms video last year. And it's it's still one of my all time in terms of fantastic camera show, in terms of a production. If you're thinking about a race as a movie production, and this was even more the case for me because um, in 2005 um, they actually broadcast, they live streamed the Daytona 500 in a couple movie theaters in the U.S. and they oh, sold wow. tickets to it. 
and the only two places they showed it, I think it was, I think it was, it was three places. I think it was in New York, it was in Chicago, and then it was at the Irvine Spectrum, which was in uh, Orange County, and that just happened to be like ten minutes from where I was going to college. Like okay. it was just down there, and you couldn't buy tickets for it um, initially. You had to win them in a drawing, and basically anybody entered, and it was like through the local Fox affiliate. So we entered that, and basically, I don't know if they had enough interest in it, so basically anybody that entered it got tickets. So my brother and I were there for that. And so we got the experience of watching that race in a movie theater, as if it was a movie, and it fit it perfectly. Because there's this shot, I mean, the last the, the last few laps of that race, where you got Tony Stewart's dominating the, most of that race, then suddenly Dale Jr. hasn't been a factor the entire day. And you got some murmuring in the crowd there with us there too, and they're kind of getting into it also. Mm-hmm. They see him start to kind of work up there, and there's this moment where they're side by side, and he's trying to get in front of Stewart, and then he does, and, and Daryl Walter's like, "He made it!" And then like <laughs> you hear the crowd, crowd's right. going nuts over the, the speakers, and there's this wonderful shot of the backstretch grandstands, and it pulls back, and you see the cars coming down, the hole in the mail on the backstretch, and Junior leading the way. And then him moving up the track and hitting the travel, it's just beautiful. It's it's everything. It's first and foremost, it's it's super speedway racing is supposed the way it's supposed to sound with those like those cross pipe enters and all that. Right. Um, the cars sound amazing. They look amazing. You got all the big all the big names. Even though I'm not a big name guy, I mean you had you had Tony Stewart, Dale Jr., Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson. Kurt Busch, uh, all those guys up there, and right behind them, you had a, you had Rusty Wallace and Mark Martin, who were just announcing their retirement season that year. Of course, for Mark, the plans changed, but at the time, we thought this would be their last Daytona 500. They're working their way up, and yeah. in between them are Scott Riggs, who's come out of nowhere to have like this tremendous speed weeks there and trying to just close it out, and Kevin LePage, who had no sponsorship on a Dodge that John Carter fielded until a Patron Tequila came on board. And he's about to get, like, you know, the first top ten, to, you know, since he drove for Roush. Um, and this whole mix. And they don't wreck. They all yeah. keep it together. Yes. And they got this this huge finish. And Jeff, you know, I'm not a big Jeff Gordon fan, but Gordon wins the 500. But any one of those guys could have won it. Yeah. That's one. I, I may not watch it, you know, start to finish. Although I think, I think the whole race is fine. I don't get some criticism for a lot of debris cautions. But that, those last few laps are just magical, just magical. I don't think that race gets near enough credit for being, it's perfect. And you talk about Larry McReynolds. I mean, he was very much a big part of that, too. It was, it was Mike Joy, Larry McReynolds, Darren Waltrip, all three of them absolutely firing on all cylinders, uh, production hitting it out of the park. It shows that they can do it. They can do it. I mean, mm-hmm. you can take it. Talladega's coming up this weekend. If they, you know, if they, if they just kind of looked at that for inspiration, um, even if the race doesn't turn out to be nearly as competitive with you know 38 cars versus 43 or whatever, you know, it would. I think it would help a lot. You know, but that's that one stands out. That one stands out for sure. There's other ones for sure, but for brevity, I'll just mention that one. Okay, I I gotcha. Um, if I could tell you a short story, one one particular race that stands out for me. Um, which wasn't even a particularly, like it wasn't even the race, it was what surrounded it. And a lot of my memorable races are certain things that surround it. Um, 2006, Aaron's 499, uh, Jimmy Johnson had gone yeah. to win it. 
And if you recall, that race was rained out until Monday. And I was probably at that point at the peak of my NASCAR fandom. I was 16 years old, and I was all about it. And Talladega was one of my favorite tracks. It gets rained out. I have school the next day, and Brock, I was heartbroken. I wasn't oh, able to see the race. It rained out. Um, and at the time, my, my mother had taken my interest in NASCAR not super seriously. Everybody kind of thought, okay, Albert's going through this phase uh, where he's into NASCAR. And the following day I'm at school, and all I could think about is that Talladega's happening and I'm missing it. And I get called down to the office. And I'm like, what, what, what did I do to get called down to the office? And when I'm there, my mother is there and says, oh, I'm here to take you out for your appointment with Dr. Waltrip. <laughs> and um, that was like, it was so cool, like sitting and eating my school lunch at home, watching there that race. And there are times where I'll rewatch that race just for that memory. Oh, I love it. I love yeah. that. So that. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's awesome. Yes, yeah, so that that's always a, a every every um, spring Talladega race. I'm always reminded of that, and always make special arrangements to try not to miss it, just for that oh, reason. Right. So. Yeah, got to schedule that one with Dr. Walter. I like that. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> no, see, that's and that's and that's so good. You know, I mean, I mean, there, there's, that's. You know, uh, it, it, it becomes, I mean, well, you, you mentioned this earlier about, you know, that being like part of a family. I mean, mm -hmm. almost it becomes a, a family experience in that sense, too. I mean, you, know, you could have, you know, you, you, you're watching a race and maybe in a whole other state, whole other part of the country. But you have this connection to something in your own life and, and, and it becomes a, a, a life experience, too. You know, yeah. so. Um, no, that's tremendous. I love that. Yes. So many. Um, there was. So I grew up in New York City. Not a lot of NASCAR going on, but one of the local radio stations started to do a contest. And um, it was New Hampshire 2006. They wanted to know, okay, the call-in show on Monday. Who won the race yesterday? And we end up winning the contest and get oh, a bunch, wow. of different, bunch of different things. So that's another race that really, you know, in and of itself is nothing big about it. Harvick won. There was, you know the amount of action that an average New Hampshire race would have. But mm. like you say, it, it enters our lives. And it does. that is what that's what made me really grow and, and really love the sport to this day. There you go. Yeah. No, that's that's fantastic. I love that. No, yeah. see that's 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 what that's what uh, that's what the sport really needs I, mean, I don't know how the sport needs to embrace that, but they, they should because I think that, you know, there's there's a um, it, it, it's it's you know it, I mean you got people that are dedicated football fans or baseball mm -hmm. fans or something like that and they'll talk about where they were when you know the Red Sox won the World Series or something like that and and yeah I mean NASCAR is very much like that and it's and it could be and, and there's and there's so much more aspects to it because you have all these different drivers and all these different teams and sponsors and you know moments that can happen in a race from one to the other and the history um, yeah it can be it can become very personal yeah. <laughs> So with all that, Brock, I really, really appreciate you um, giving me your time tonight. Um, it was great to converse with you. Uh, before we go, would you mind um, filling people in on where they could find you and where they could um, find your work? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, the best place is uh, check out my website, lastcar.info. Uh, follow the last place finishers of the Cup, Xfinity, and Truck Series races, as well as our staff riders, William Saki and Ben Schneider, uh, cover other series, including IndyCar. Uh, that is, again, at lastcar.info. Uh, look up Brock Beard on YouTube. Uh, you'll find my content on there, as well as my... <coughs> excuse me. Bad timing with coffee. <laughs> Uh, allergy season in full effect here yeah, at last night. Um, the uh, Brock Beard on YouTube. Um, you look up uh, my channel on there. I do weekly live streams, usually about 15 minutes after the uh, race is over with. Uh, talk about the action there from the track and do some trivia along the way. Uh, Patreon.com slash last on Brock if you're interested in supporting the site. Uh, helps pay for our staff writers as well as uh, doing track site coverage license uh, issues there for um, uh, the videos I produce on the channel and so forth. Um, really helps out on that. Um, and uh, at Lascaron Brock on Twitter uh, for any of my uh, other updates there through the week, including uh, live tweets during the races themselves. Cool. And if I'm not, if I'm correct, your J.D. McDuffie book is available on Amazon? It is, yes. Thank you. Uh, yeah, J.D., uh, the, um, uh, the title is just J.D., uh, that's uh, available on Amazon right now. The second edition's uh, available for print. And uh, if you're interested in getting your copy signed, uh, stay tuned. Because we'll probably be doing some book. Uh, well, we were definitely going to be doing some book signings for the Derek Coke book. Uh, and of course, I'm not going to turn down any JD books that show up there as well. So uh, we'll be doing that at, uh, at the same time. So stay tuned for more on that. Again, the Twitter feed at Last Carl Brock would be the best place to get more updates on that. Cool. Thank you once again, Brock, for giving your time for the podcast. And also, thank you for all the, the time and effort you put into putting out your material for this sport. I know I speak for a lot of people and say that I really enjoy what you're doing and uh, look forward to what you have coming up. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot. I, I really... I really aim to, um, you know, bring bring as many people into, you know, this the sports history as possible. And, you know, if it's something else that, that people will find enjoyment in, that uh, that does make my day. So I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you. Let me know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm looking forward to what you have coming up. And um, yeah, I'll most likely be seeing you after Talladega for your behind the wall. There you go. Oh, yeah, enjoy <laughs> the spring races. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Brock Beard on the Planet Shivers podcast. What fun. That was a very enjoyable episode for me. It was great to speak with Brock about sport we both love. And there's going to be more racing-related podcasts coming up. Nick, if you remember from a few episodes ago, Nick Barbati, otherwise known as Alfonso Adams, he and I recorded a NASCAR episode that will be coming out very soon. I'm going to just keep on keeping on with this thing. It's been a lot of fun. We are so close to episode 100, and there's big doings for episode 100, and I can't wait to, for you guys to hear and see it. Um, Till next time, you could find this episode and more on all major podcast platforms and YouTube with video. I want to give one more big thank you to Brock Beard for coming on the show and spending time with us. There's going to be a lot of cool episodes coming up, and I hope you guys stick around for them. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of somebody else. In America, there exists a sport that is driven by the fans. 
They are why everyone works so hard. On the teams and at the tracks. In front of the grandstands and behind the scenes. To give the fans the greatest race possible. NASCAR fans deserve the best. Starting from the high banks of Daytona. All the way to the shores of California. And at every race in between. NASCAR fans, you're the reason for our success.